0: If I go back to the PhD program, I had so much self-doubt, so many limiting beliefs, and probably first among them was I wouldn't graduate. I would not be able to finish a dissertation. And that is potentially a crippling and self-fulfilling belief. The doubt is not helpful, and you can do so much more. Do you ever feel like the person most
1: getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead, and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work, and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. I am beyond excited to be speaking to Amy Edmondson today. Amy is Professor of Leadership at Harvard Business School. And if you're hearing her name for the first time today, then please allow me to blow Amy's horn for her. She is a very big deal, incredibly well respected in academic circles. She's kind of a celebrity academic, I would say. I've also heard her referred to as the Beyonce of behavioural science. If you manage a team at work and you've learned anything about good leadership and management theory in the past few years, you will have come across the term psychological safety. It's been one of the top leadership buzz terms. And well, you have Amy to thank for this. She coined the term. And if you don't manage a team, but if you have a great boss, well, then you possibly have Amy to thank for that, as your boss almost certainly knows what psychological safety is, and it may very well have been influencing their leadership style. If you don't know what on earth I'm talking about, then don't worry, I'm going to ask Amy to explain what psychological safety is and what you need to know about it, why it's been so groundbreaking. She's also going to go into the many misinterpretations of it, which is pretty interesting. Now, in late 2023, so more recently, Amy has released a new book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. This is where I'm going to start my conversation with Amy. We hear a lot about the benefits of failure. People in the startup and tech world especially tend to love telling their failure stories as badges of honor for all the amazing things it taught them. Now, Amy's research has found that a lot of the commonly peddled information about failure isn't actually quite right. Intrigued? Good. Let's speak to Amy. So, Amy, I've been really enjoying reading The Right Kind of Wrong, so congratulations
2: on it. Thank you.
1: My first question on this is that we've become so used to this idea, especially over the last few years, that we should celebrate failure as this great learning opportunity, right? And I've heard you refer to this as the failure fad, I think. Yeah, the failure fad. (laughs) But you have found that it's actually, it's not as easy as we think to learn from failure. Can you tell us more?
0: Yes. So I think there's two important things here. One is it's not as easy as we imagine it would be to learn from failure. But the other is that not all failures should be celebrated. I do believe all failures should be learned from, but only what I'll call the intelligent failures are sort of worthy of celebration or you know, truly uh, moments of discovery and progress that we can't do without So we need to wholeheartedly accept them. And so we we can come back to intelligent failures and what constitutes an intelligent failure. But just in general, it's hard for us to learn from failure because we are reluctant to confront them. We don't really like to look closely at our own failures. You know, we shy away from doing the work that might be involved or dig in and say, what happened? What unfolded here? And what can I learn? What can I take away? So oftentimes those efforts are just very superficial and end with something like, well, we'll try harder next time, or it was just bad luck or forces outside my control thereby failing to take advantage of the potential lessons uh, that were there.
1: Yeah. So, okay, you mentioned intelligent failures there. I do want to come back to this framework of failure types that you have. So, a goal of yours with the book is to help people and organizations learn so that they can thrive in a world that keeps changing. So, most people will have come to this podcast looking for insights in how they personally can handle failure better. How can
2: individuals learn from failure in the best way.
0: Well, with a clear eye and an open heart, right? and again, the right question is what happened? You know, not who did it or what's to blame or who's to blame. Our tendency is to sort of want to jump right to cause, but we can't jump to cause. We have to first understand the unfolding narrative. For many failures, there's multiple perspectives or multiple vantage points from which you need to understand that simple question of what happened. When we do that well, we stand to gain insights that can help us avoid, certainly avoid the same failure a second time, and also learn some more general lessons that can just help us do well.
1: It's so interesting, because actually before
2: reading your book, I think I'd assumed that learning was sort of baked into the failure,
0: (laughs) that it was automatic. Right, it's automatic, exactly. (laughs) No, but it isn't. So, I mean, I think sometimes we just don't want to look at it. We take away the quick superficial lessons, you know, don't want to do that again, but don't really, you know, I we think a failure is an investment in the future and you've already paid for it. So you might as well reap its rewards and, and do that additional bit of extra effort to get what you can from it.
1: Oh, I like that. I'm going to be using that. One thing I wanted to ask you about is that we have a tendency as humans to really hold on to negative thoughts and bad things that happen and and the negative side of failure more so than
2: we will hold on you know to good thoughts or positive feedback why do we do this to ourselves
0: well <laughs> that's a deep question i suppose psychologists have shown quite robustly that this is a phenomenon, that that Mm -hmm. bad is stronger than good. And I think the reigning answer to why do we do this to ourselves is at one point, it had a survival advantage. You were better off kind of assuming the worst about that fuzzy danger off on the horizon than assuming the best, because you're better off taking precautions than blithely walking along and you know being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. So that idea that it had a survival advantage to kind of assume the worst, but it doesn't serve us very well in the modern world, because it can make us risk-averse in the very settings where we should be taking risks. Given the, the pace of change and the ever-present novelty of technology and situations in our lives, we must be... continuous learners if we're going to thrive. And to be continuous learners, um, we have to engage in the kind of risky behavior of learning, which includes the missteps, um, especially in new territory.
1: So failure can be incredibly painful, and it causes us to feel bad about ourselves. It fuels our self-doubt. It's like proof that we're not good enough. How do you recommend we reframe
2: failure so it doesn't feel so harmful to us? That's exactly the right
0: question. And, and the answer is embedded in the question, which is it is about reframing. So what does that mean? You know, a frame is the automatic meaning we attach to a situation. The situation is just what it is, the events in our lives are what they are, but we instantly make meaning of them. And as you point out, oftentimes that meaning contributes to our sense of self-doubt. We attach meaning to it that just says, oh, it's more evidence that I'm not good enough. Mm. And that is usually wrong-headed and unhelpful. So the good news is we can learn to reframe. You may not be able to avoid that quick, spontaneous attachment of those negative thoughts, but you can take a breath and challenge them and say, well, hold on a minute. This was disappointing, but what does it really mean? Well, it means something didn't go well in arguably new territory, that's okay. right? That's part of life. That's something I can learn from rather than be upset about. I think one great example of this is the the data that suggests that bronze medalists in the Olympics are happier than the silver medalists. It sounds completely (laughs) counterintuitive, but the bronze medalists spontaneously frame their medal as they could so easily have not medaled. They yeah. could so easily have not been on the platform. You know, maybe it's a matter of seconds or a tiny score difference from their competitors. So they're they're grateful to have gotten a medal at the Olympics. Whereas the silver medalists rather spontaneously frame their medal adjacent to or with respect to the gold. They're ugh, oh, you know, I just missed gold by this much. So they're looking up, not down. And so reframing, you know, whether it's for the silver medalists for any of us in our lives experiencing a failure is the act of pausing to be as clear eyed and rational and health and future oriented as we can be about really what happened. Really, what does it mean? And really what do I want to do with it?
2: So it's sort of detaching the the emotion from it a little bit. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, you know, mitigating the emotion by being more thoughtful about what's really so. That this failure means I'm inadequate. No, actually it doesn't, right? It means that this happened, right? This happened. Now let's look at why. Maybe it's because you attempted something incredibly challenging in new territory for you. You're supposed to expect a learning curve, right? That's how it's supposed to unfold. So that's good.
1: Yeah. So if someone had a big project at work. It didn't have the desired outcome. Everyone's disappointed. The person leading this project feels like the spotlight of failure and shame is
2: on them. How should this be treated by the individual, but also by the team? First
0: should be treated as an opportunity to learn what happened. And again, it may be that in the work we do to figure out what happened, that we do discover some shortcomings that were on us, right? We do discover that in fact, we made some preventably bad decisions or some people didn't show up with all of their energy at moments where they could have. Mm. And we should be honest about that with ourselves because the goal is always to fix the future. You can't fix the past. Right? So the goal is always to say, let's be honest with ourselves, especially within our team, right? And then, you know, we can decide exactly what to offer the rest of the world later, but let's be truly honest about the things that were in our control and that weren't in our control. Sometimes projects don't go well because truly sheer bad luck from external forces outside your control that you could not have seen coming. Other times, a project, or at least some of the reason for the project not going well might have to do with internal factors. And the empowering aspect of that realization is that we, in fact, can take it upon ourselves to do better next time. It's more exciting to discover something that's under your control than to discover something, you know, lets you off the hook to discover something that's external, but it's not terribly useful.
1: Yeah. Why do you think, I mean, it's become such a big thing in sort of Silicon Valley and startup culture, this almost fetishization of failure.
0: Why do you think it's taken off so much? Well, I think part of it is because people realized psychologically and emotionally that we need help with the inevitability of failure. We need help if we are to confront it in a healthy and rational way. That human response to failure is so overwhelmingly negative that we need to reframe it, right? So, you know, the Silicon Valley talk is really... An active reframe to say, no, when you're in new territory, when you're starting a new company, by the way, you know, 90% of them fail. So that's par for the course. You know, that's the sport you signed up to play. So that's that's what's good about it. What's potentially limiting about it is that they don't go out of their way to say, look, this is for new territory. This is not for managing the automotive assembly line or the cardiac surgery operating room. This is advice that applies beautifully to new territory where there is truly no way to know what will happen without trying it. You have to experiment, like it or not. And when you're experimenting, some portion of the experiments will end in failure, like it or not. So it's a healthy reframing exercise on math to help people see that, yeah, you got to take risks in new territory. But it doesn't do its job well enough to say, this is contingent advice. This is advice that works here, but not there.
1: Yeah. Okay. So it makes sense. It only really works in a phase of experimentation, right? Not with tried and tested. We know how
0: this works. Right. And experimentation only makes sense when you truly don't know the answer and you have no other way to get the answer but to experiment.
2: Okay. So, Amy, you mentioned earlier intelligent failures. I'd love to come back to this because I know you have a, a framework of failure types. Could you take us through this?
0: So, the, the three failure types are intelligent, complex, and basic. And intelligent failures are the right kind of wrong. And they are the undesired results of thoughtful, forays into new territory. Four criteria. One, it should be genuinely new territory. If you can look up the answer on the internet, by all means do. It should be in pursuit of a goal. You're not just messing about for the fun of it. You should have done your homework. In other words, you have good reason to believe this might work, this business idea, this clinical trial, this blind date, whatever it is. And finally, the failure size, if it happens, should be as small as possible, it's just big enough to learn from and no bigger. You don't want to have your uncertain experiments be larger than was necessary in terms of time, resources, and potentially harmful impact. Mm. So calculated risks. Yeah, so calculated risks, exactly. If that's the definition of an intelligent failure, I could just as easily say that's the definition of thoughtful experiments because it's true. Now, the other kinds of failures, so those I'm in favor of, I think in our lives, in our companies, we need more of them if we're to innovate, if we're to make progress in a changing world. The other two types of failures, just to get out ahead of it, are ones that I think we should work hard to avoid, right? These are not the ones that are worthy of celebration. Again, we can still learn from them, but they are theoretically preventable, And that ought to be at least part of our goal. So a basic failure is a single-cause failure in familiar territory. It's when something goes wrong that went wrong because you made a mistake. You had the knowledge, but you failed to use it. And sometimes a basic failure can be large, sometimes they can be small, but they are both theoretically and to a high degree practically preventable when we're at our best. Complex failures are multi-causal. And they often have, you know, a set of, of, of contributing factors, maybe internal to say the project and external, maybe a pinch of bad luck is thrown in there as well, things outside your control that you didn't see coming. And those two, many, not all, but many of them can be prevented when we speak up in a timely way, you know, and someone says, wait a minute, this doesn't look quite right. Will you help me take a look at this and get out ahead of some of these factors before they they cause the larger failure yeah yeah the failures grow if you
1: if you communi- communicate them early then you can uh- <laughs> Mitigate small some problems of the failures.
0: we can uh, still address before they spiral out of control and become big failures. Yeah, okay. Note to
2: self, try to only make intelligent failures in the future.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, none of us will be able to pull that off 100%, <laughs> but I always want to be clear that that's the goal. The the goal yeah. isn't to have sloppy failures, right? The, the goal isn't to have the kinds of failures that because you mailed it in and didn't really do your best. <laughs>
2: Quick interruption, just to let you know, this podcast is brought to you by Tiger Hall, the knowledge
1: infrastructure for Fortune 500 firms. Just as I am now, for Tiger Hall, I interview global top business executives and industry experts on topics that help employees and organizations drive change and get ahead. If you're an executive driving large transformational change across your organization, we could help you get that done much faster through the power of knowledge sharing in the flow of work check us out at tigerhall.com so early in the book you you list some of your own failures and we all have so many i'm wondering how did these have an impact on your self belief
0: oh yeah i try to be very clear about this in the book but my own failures have been very painful and at times had a large impact on my self belief so when something goes wrong when i fail at something i don't see it coming, maybe, and it happens, it's devastating. And so I've had because of that, because that's normal human being with all of those reactions, because of that, I really tried to get scientific about it. What's really true here? What's really healthy? Is it the case that oh, I'll never amount to anything because this didn't turn out the way I wanted? Of course not, right. And if you can just get that tiny bit of healthy uh, distance from the situation, Most of the time, you can coach yourself through it. Uh, Most of the time, I can coach myself through it. But sometimes, maybe often, you need the help of a friend, you know, a sibling, someone a, who can a wise say, friend. hold on. Yeah, a wise friend. <laughs> Who's exactly. read your book, perhaps. <laughs> yes, or or even without reading my book, although I definitely think it's better if you do read the book, <laughs> even without reading it, most of us have someone in our lives or more than one person in our lives who can sort of say, oh, let's put this in perspective, right? Mm. Everybody's gone through that. And it's in fact not the end of the world. And here, let's take a look together at why you should feel okay.
1: Yeah. And so, I read in, it was in the preface of Right, Kind of Wrong, where you mentioned that a number of times you found yourself thinking, oh, maybe I'm not cut out for a PhD program. You questioned if you could make it as a researcher. Could you tell us a bit more about this? Sure. I
0: mean, talk about self-doubt. I, like probably many people, when I started a PhD program at Harvard, and I'd been working for 10 years, so I'd been out of school for a while. And in my mind, you know, PhD is a pretty serious thing to do, and you probably should be pretty smart and capable to do it. And of course, I had enormous self-doubts. Now, I had in an early research project, really my first research project as a PhD student, I had the experience of my hypothesis which made sense to me and had solid support from prior literature. And I went out and collected data from healthcare delivery teams in some hospitals. And, you know, that's a lot of work, collecting all that data from all those people and and getting it you know entered and and running the analyses, and when I ran the analyses, not only was my hypothesis not supported, it was truly one hundred and eighty degrees off in other words the the correlation between my hypothesis was that good teams would have fewer medical errors, and so you know it should be good teamwork, leads to low errors. In fact, the data were saying the exact opposite that the better teams, according to a validated team survey instrument. Had higher, not lower error rates as collected by trained medical investigators, sort of going team to team and getting, trying to get those data. Again, I was dumbfounded. I was scared. I thought, you know, well, I'm going to have to drop out of school because this makes no sense to me. And also, all those months of work invested that amount to not, or at least that's what it seemed in the moment. And my mind went to all of the awful things that would necessarily happen now that I was so wrong, you know, including not being able to complete the PhD program and all the rest. And that kind of, you know, deep doubt and anxiety only lasted in this case for a few hours before I you know, did the harder work of trying to say, okay, what happened? Like, what's going on here? What, What do these data really mean? Because I have a hard time with the idea that better teamwork leads to more error, right? That just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And it suddenly occurred to me in that more productive, thoughtful space that maybe the better teams aren't making more mistakes. Maybe they're disclosing more, right? Maybe they understand that this is a really important behavior, especially given what's at stake for hospitalized patients. And so that was a very new interpretation. With the data I already had, I did not have what I needed to proved that that might be the case, but it started me thinking. And that thinking ultimately led to the idea that the interpersonal climate for speaking up about risky issues could vary substantially across teams, even teams in the same organizational context. And that ultimately was the insight that led to the idea of team psychological safety and a subsequent research study where I could try to measure that, successfully could measure that and show that it really did predict uh, team performance using a variety of measures of performance.
1: I love this story. And I have to say, you have just helped me segue so beautifully into psychological safety that I don't even need to try and come up with a clever link myself. (laughs) So I'm sure that quite a few people listening will be familiar with psychological safety. But
2: if you were to explain psychological safety to someone who's never heard this term before,
0: how would you do so? You know, I would say it describes a learning environment. And it describes an environment where you genuinely believe you have permission to speak up about whether it's a dissenting view, a question, I need help, I'm in over my head, a concern about a plan, or even just a wild idea that might be way off base. It's an environment where you have a belief you won't be rejected or humiliated for speaking up. And that is essential for learning. It is essential for knowledge work, really. The more the work requires judgment, ingenuity, uncertainty, the more psychological safety will have a positive impact on performance.
1: And what you found in the hospitals is that you found that the quote-unquote better teams made more mistakes because people
0: were more comfortable to discuss their mistakes. Right, right. So I don't think they were making more mistakes. I truly think they were reporting more mistakes. Mm -hmm. And then that led me to the conclusion, again difficult to prove with those data, that we did not know. We were not getting an adequate measure of the actual error rates. Because if an event happens that is Unhideable, it can't be hidden. But many of the small mishaps in a complex activity like hospitalized patient care just can easily fly under the radar. It's perfectly possible not to surface them and with no malicious intent, but just, you know, like let's go on with our, with our job. So I came away thinking that we had a reporting bias where some teams were more able to be honest. So it's even possible that the teams with those high error rates were reporting them all, but the teams with the low error rates, I was beginning to believe, were not reporting them all. Mm -hmm. Again, not because they weren't good people, but because they truly felt it was career ending or emotionally crippling or just, you know, it doesn't feel doable. And if it doesn't feel doable, you just don't do it. You hold back.
1: Yeah, didn't feel safe to share to share the mistakes.
0: Yes. You know, and nowadays, I see a lot of writing on articles everywhere, not too many, but enough where people are saying psychological safety is table stakes, like every employee, you know, should expect psychological safety as kind of a foundational aspect. And I truly see it quite differently. I mean, I think I think it's an aspiration. I don't think psychological safety is the sort of, you know, natural state at work So long as there's no toxicity or, you know, out and out bullying. I think it is natural and normal to hold back, you know, to kind of wait and see, to look around and to create an environment where people really do, you know, lean in and speak up despite that little anxiety that all of us have. That's unnatural, but very, very powerful. It's a real advantage when you can create it. But I don't think people should be beating themselves up for not having it because it's natural.
1: Okay. So my full-time job is leading podcasts for Tiger Hall. So I I spend my days speaking to senior business leaders about strategy, sales, and very often, Amy, leadership. And I cannot tell you over the last few years how many people, how many people want to talk about psychological safety. So. For me, talking to you is like talking to the ultimate celebrity. I've heard your name so many times. So, But my question here is that because so many people love to speak about psychological safety, I wonder how many people have actually gone to the source, they have
2: gone back to your original
1: literature.
2: And do you find that people have often misunderstood or haven't quite got it right.
0: Yes. So there's as many misunderstandings as there are, you know, speakers, I suppose. But Mm. I've heard everything from, you know, psychological safety, that means just being nice. But of course, being nice, which is also like being polite is quite at odds with being candid because we being nice is code for don't say what you really think. Don't disagree with the boss. Don't give feedback to a colleague who is doing something not quite right. So it's not being nice. It's also not being comfortable. It's being okay with our discomfort because learning is uncomfortable, right? So it's a learning environment, not a kind of nice, cozy, comfortable environment. It's not at odds with high performance. In fact, it's essential for high performance, right? It's not about lowering expectations for how hard we work or how well we work. It's about freeing us up to take the risks we need to take to do great work.
2: How many organizations do you think actually have a truly
0: psychologically safe environment? You know, probably most of them have it somewhere. So this is the other thing that I think is really important to understand about psychological safety is that it's variegated. It is rarely, if ever, uniform in a company, unless the company is a tiny startup, in which case it's really a team. But, you know, most companies of any size have as many different team climates as they have teams. And some of them are going to be hotbeds of learning and candor and humor and just you know, all in engagement and experimentation. And some of them are going to be quite formal and full of anxiety. And so the implication here is that psychological safety, because it does tend to be a group level phenomenon, is quite dependent on leadership in the middle, right? Executive leaders matter, but mm. it's the, the leaders in the middle, the sort of um, branch managers or project leaders th- that really are shaping that climate.
1: If we have listening now, those project leaders, the, the branch managers, they're listening now and they're thinking, God, I want to make sure my team is really, that we have this
2: psychological safety. What, what should they be thinking? What are the stepping stones? Well, it starts with reframing,
0: which we were talking about earlier. And it's, it's like, assume that your team does not have the best possible frame or meaning attached to the reality that you're dealing with. And go out of your way to reframe it to one that really is a productive frame. Like, gosh, we've never done a project like this before. This is new territory. Need your input. Or like, this is a complex, error-prone environment. You know, we're dealing with the sickest of patients, right? So getting out ahead of and reframing um, the nature of the work as the kind of work that is dependent on people's willingness to take those interpersonal risks and uh, might even be, you know, emphasizing the novelty of it or the complexity of it or the sheer challenge of it to make the rational case that we are sincere when we say we all need to speak up, even though that can be hard. Number two is be proactive, you know, invite the quiet voices in. Ask good questions. That's what you're doing today. You're asking questions, and you're asking questions that would be very awkward when you ask me a question for me to just sit here quietly. I almost can't do it. It's the same if you're a project leader, you just remind yourself that when you are asking a genuine question what are you seeing out there? What are we missing? What ideas do you have? People will respond. They'd feel mighty awkward not doing so. And finally, Monitor your responses. You know, when people bring bad news or dissenting views, what do you do? What what is your face doing? Right? Are you genuinely, it's okay to be surprised. It's okay to not like it, but you've got to welcome it. Thanks for that, right? Thanks for that clear line of sight. How can I help? So it's forward looking.
1: So I guess also I mean it's kind of walking the talk as a leader. You have to say that you're doing these things, but also really very much do them. Yeah. That's right.
0: And being learning oriented. You know, it's it's almost as if you're if you're willing as a leader to approach your work, both the substance of it and the leadership aspects of it, as a learning activity, as a project that will help you get better at what you do, what you know. You don't have to remember a three-step formula or anything else. You will naturally do the right things if you approach it with that learner mindset. Mm.
1: And I suppose also going back to the what we were talking about, failure,
2: also just making sure you're sharing your little failures as the leader to encourage other people to do so,
0: right? Absolutely. You must go first. Ed Catmull at Pixar said, if we as leaders can talk about our mistakes, it makes it safe for other people to do the same. And I would add, if you don't, they won't.
1: So, Amy, I'm asking everyone who comes on this podcast to share stories of times where self-doubt got in the way or limiting beliefs they've had. We've touched on a little bit of this for you already. Is there anything else that comes to
0: mind that you can share? Well, you know, I guess if I go back to the PhD program, I had so much self-doubt, so many limiting beliefs, and probably first among them was I wouldn't graduate. I would not be able to finish a dissertation. And that was, you know, that is potentially a crippling and self-fulfilling belief. And so I would deliberately challenge myself, right? Just, no, you know, a dissertation is merely five or six chapters, right? And what's a chapter? A chapter is a kind of 20 or 30 page paper. I've written those before. I can write them again. Um, And then there's the self-doubt and the limiting belief that no one will ever hire me to be a a professor. Like, well, okay, maybe that's true. And go try. Like, go see what hap- Like, what's the worst that could happen? You're right. The worst that can happen is you're right. You try, you apply for jobs, you know, maybe give job talks and no one hires you. And okay, then you got the data. And then guess what? There will be another job. There will be other things you can do with research skills and teaching ability. In companies, right in the learning and development space, which I always appreciated, and, you know, I thought was just such exciting territory. So I had to remind myself that if I don't get what was my first choice, kind of a job as a as an assistant professor somewhere, I would absolutely find a way to be gainfully employed, in doing work that I loved.
1: Yeah. Well, aren't we all glad that you didn't give in to <laughs> your self doubt and limiting beliefs? Well, thank you. Do you have any recommendations for someone who is doubting themselves a lot?
0: Well, you can start with being your own sounding board, but there's nothing like a great friend or a coach or a colleague who can help you hold up the mirror and just ask the truthfully fact-based questions of what is really true here. The doubt is even at times attractive, but it is not helpful to you, and you can do so much more.
1: That's something that we can pull out right there. I <laughs> love it bit of inspiration from Amy Edmondson. Okay, Amy, I'm asking everyone the same wrap-up question, which is, can you think of someone to nominate or suggest to come on this podcast? So Dr. Thomas
2: uh, Chamorro-Promusic, he recommended you. Can you think of someone brilliant who you think would
0: be great? I'm going to say... Ingrid Nemhard, which is a former student of mine. She's a full professor at Wharton. She studies healthcare management. She's incredibly thoughtful and poised and deep in her thinking about leadership issues, particularly in the healthcare space.
1: Okay, I would love to speak to her. Okay, great recommendation. Thank you so much. Very welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant
0: guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.